This is Lex Kibernetica, the cyber law podcast by the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. Welcome to Lex Kibernetica. It is spring 2018, and today we will talk about the talent manual with our esteemed guests. Deborah Hausen-Kuriel, I teach cyber law at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem's law faculty, uh, treating both Israeli aspects and international aspects of cyber law. I'm Yuval Shani, I'm a law professor at the Hebrew University, and I direct the cyber law program at the faculty. I'm Dana Flory, former military advocate general of the IDF, now associated researcher at the center in the faculty of law of Hebrew University. I'm Dokenan, and I'm your host. The Talent Manual is an academic study of the application of the international law to cyber conflicts, cyber warfare, and cyber aggression. The story of the Talent Manual, named after the capital city of Estonia, started over a decade ago. A Soviet World War II war memorial that stood in the capital city of Tallinn for 60 years led to a 2007 attack on the Republic of Estonia, who blamed Russia. It was not a traditional attack by soldiers and tanks and planes and bullets and grenades and missiles, but by means of cyber. The government, the printed broadcast, press, and the banking system were all targets. At the time, Madis Miko, a spokesman for the Estonian Defense Ministry, told the New York Times, quote, If you have a missile attack against, let's say, an airport, it is an act of war. If the same result is caused by computers, then how else do you describe that kind of attack? End quote. One of the most connected countries in the world, the attack threatened to take so-called Estonia back to the Stone Age. As early as 2004, Estonia suggested NATO create a cyber defense center. A year after it was cyber-attacked, the NATO Cooperative Cyber Defense Center of Excellence was established, soon commissioning an academic study on the application of international law on cyber war. The Talent Manual on the International Law Applicable to Cyber Warfare, commonly referred to as the Talent Manual, was published in 2013. What was uh, the Talent Manual, Professor Shani? So Talin Manual was uh, syndicated, it was a, a project which was undertaken by a group of experts that tried to do a very uh, difficult task, namely to take the laws of war that apply in the physical, in the kinetic so-called world, and to apply them to the cybernetic world, and to uh, basically develop a body of rules that could regulate uh, cyber wars and other cyber conflicts. Now, this is so difficult because there are very major differences between the physical world and the cybernetic world. For instance, the notion of territory does not exist in the cybernetic world. Uh, governments do not play the same kind of central role. It's very hard to uh, to identify who is behind a cyber attack. And also the objects of protection are quite different. So as we're in the, in the real world, we are concerned about buildings and individuals. Here we are often concerned about data and about the functionality of computers, and it is very hard for the rules of law to actually protect them. And indeed, one of the criticisms of the Tallinn process is that it, it does focus on physical harms and not so much on harms to uh, data and other digital assets. In 2017, Tallinn Manual 2.0 came out, expanding the scope to examine cyber events that do not amount to an act of war, but are nonetheless potentially provoking and damaging. The study was conducted by an international group of academic experts headed by a senior fellow at the center, Professor Michael Schmidt from the United States Naval War College and the University of Exeter, and a visiting researcher at the Cyber Law Program. Professor Schmidt spoke at the cyber conference uh, at the center. Let's hear 
the Estonians were making noise about coming forward to NATO and uh, looking to Article 5 of the North Atlantic Treaty for the NATO countries to come to the defense of Estonia against Russia. And let me tell you what, that got our attention in a big way uh, because we were rather tied up, the NATO countries were rather tied up elsewhere in Afghanistan, Iraq, and so forth. And we thought, holy cow, because of cyber, we're going to go to war with the Russians. One of Talent 2.0's team members was advocate Deborah Hausen Kuriel, who teaches international and Israeli cyber law at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem Law Faculty. So what was the purpose of the second manual? Following up a little bit on Yuval's earlier comments, um, the second manual was really prompted by states' reactions to uh, Talon 1. Uh, Talon 1 did a great job of uh, picking what we call Lex Lata, which is existing international, international law, or a law in general, taking the existing law and uh, doing kind of a, a, an exercise, an academic, uh, an important academic exercise, and applying it to a completely new area of human endeavor, which is cyberspace. The manual could have stopped at one, but states said and, and organizations said what we're seeing is really not so much uses of force in cyberspace, not so much the physical damages that Yuval had, had referred to earlier, but we're seeing all kinds of hostile activity that doesn't quite make it over a threshold of a use of force threshold in, in the language of international law. There's lots of hostile activity going on and we don't quite know what to do with that or what international law says about that. And that really prompted the, um, the second version of the manual, which dealt with a greater variety of activities and aggressions and uh, hostilities that were under that threshold of use of force. And you were content on not legislating, on keeping within existing laws, uh, what you call uh, Lex Lara? That's absolutely right. So our mandate as, a, as really an academic group was certainly not to legislate. We weren't given those powers, unfortunately, by, uh, by anybody uh, who was funding the project, but really to uh, set out and explore how international law might work out in this new Existing area. International so, law. So, so there are benefits and there are, uh, there are drawbacks to a situation like this. On the one hand, um, before the Tallinn Manual, essentially, um, at least in the West, there was really no framework, measuring stick, baseline to say, to answer the question, do we really have applicability of international law in this new Is space? there a law in this uh, right. wild, wild web? Exactly. And I would, I would bring us back to the sort of uh, ancient history after World War I, when air power was first used in warfare. What do we do with these new things flying around in the air? Are they part of warfare? Should they be part of warfare? Are they allowed to bomb civilians? Are they not? It takes time before international lawyers catch up a little bit in terms of the norms. So just to sort of sum up the mandate that we had, it was to take a look at what's developing at a very fast pace in cyberspace and say, how do we take existing international law norms and try to see as a baseline how they might apply? And also, uh, because if you use laws that already exist, it makes it harder for countries to dispute your conclusions. So I would push back on that statement a little bit. It wasn't really about bringing countries on board the opposite, I think. It's really up to states and international It was an adversary um, um, attempt? No, not at all. Not at all the opposite. The academic law community is, or international law community, and others may dispute this in, in, our, in the conversations coming up, is really, um, we're helpmates to states, states and to another, to a certain degree, international organizations, they're the, they're the chief actors of international law. They make international law. So uh, academics um, can and do uh, 
right, and they should. That's their job. But uh, our mandate as academics stops at the level of what we call um, state practice. And on many occasions in the Talon II process, Professor Mike Schmidt was very explicit about saying, we are bringing these materials to states. It's up to states to either apply them or not apply them. So we were really engaging in an exercise that we hoped and hope that states will be able to take advantage of in the activities that they uh, carry out in cyberspace. Well, you can always dream. <laughs> um, right. What criticism was directed at the Italian manual? Oh, there, were, there was no criticism whatsoever directed at the <laughs> um, Everybody agrees. Uh, I have to say, as a preliminary statement, it was really our leadership, the leadership of the, uh, of the manual, was really careful to have an ear to that criticism. Because again, this was a... Uh, from the beginning, uh, designed as a tool for states and to a lesser degree. States for, were actually consulted. You, that's correct. You, uh, the academics, uh, did not represent countries, exactly right. but countries were advised in the process of uh, writing the manual. That's absolutely right. So the process was a very careful one. The academic work was done uh, in Tallinn, uh, in a closed room, very much a closed room situation, and there was a, a lot of discipline in the process in terms of not sharing outside of the room. And I think that was, um, by and large, respected. Uh, by countries, by organizations, and by the academics who are doing the work. Uh, parallel to the process of the academic work, the leadership of the project, uh, Professor Schmidt and, and uh, two or three others, met off-site in a different place, in a different process with a different name, with different funding, with states, again, with uh, discretionary safeguards in place, so that countries who were interested in having their own inputs into the anonymous inputs in the, at the end of the day, into this whole process would have an opportunity to do so, again, discreetly without attribution of statements and positions, etc. And uh, that worked pretty well. You had asked about criticisms. I think two of the major ones at one stage or another were, you know, you're doing this without consulting enough states or enough of a diversity of states or state actors at the level of that state consultation. So basically, you're a Western um, organization. Or, that, that was number two. That mm -hmm. um, I don't necessarily agree with this critique, but the critique was the academics in the room were uh, not representative of, of a full range of views of international law. But I quickly, I hasten to add that um, a lot of effort was expended, again, within the framework of that academic process to really call uh, a, a diversity of academic views of international law. And I think to the degree that that could have been done, um, we tried to do that. Do you feel uh, Tallinn is relevant? I do. Colleagues here will may have different views, but I think uh, if you go five, even five years before the Tallinn Manuals, Tallinn One's publication, um, there were question marks around the whole issue of the applicability of international law to cyberspace. It's still not a clean conclusion. There's still some pushback. But in my view, that baseline has been established, um, both for the West and for the East. The combination of words, uh, international and law, is found together. And I think a lot of that has to do with the Tallinn processes, both of them. And now to the application of the Tallinn manual. Danifoni, you studied with Yuval Shani and how Tallinn rules influenced states' practice in cyber confrontations. Uh, in your paper, The Italian Manual on Cyber Operations and the Laws of War Towards Customary International Law. Uh, can you tell us about uh, your findings? What we try to look for is to what degree the Italian rules indeed influenced the practice of states. We picked out of thousands of incidents, cyber incidents all over the globe, 15 incidents 
that we used as case studies. What was the criteria that you used to include or exclude uh, the events, the incidents? The first one, it's uh, the date. It should be from 2013 or the summer of 2012 when the ideas of the uh, international group of experts of Tallinn were already in the open. Yes. The second criterion was all of those incidents should be politically motivated. So initiated by uh, or sponsored by nations or by proxies. State actors or their yes. Uh, um, affiliates. Yes, affiliates to nations. And uh, the third one, it's the damage that caused by those incidents should be significant. What is significant? How do you define that? We can speak about, as Tallinn uh, referred to, physical damage, of course, but we included also uh, damage in data or in uh, money or material, uh, other material uh, damages. Denial of service would also be a um, significant damage? Uh, yes, of damage? course. Yes, okay. of course. Yes. We, we excluded criminal uh, incidents, crimes. And espionage. And uh, what were the results? What did you see in those incidents? First of all, destructive cyber attacks, such as Soniak, sense because, you know, Sheldon Ederson that was hacked by Iranian with um, significant physical damage to computer. Actually, it was the first destructive cyber attack on American company on U.S. soil. We have the Shamoon uh, attacks in the Gulf region between Iran and Saudi Arabia. Also, we came across unique incidents, cyber incidents that caused for the first time casualties. Two Iranians were killed and the other five or seven were injured as a result of cyber attack. We also included two incidents that connected to inform influence uh, operation, cyber operation. The most famous one is the DNC. Democratic two- National Committee, uh, yes. whose emails were uh, stolen and leaked. Yes. Also, the hacking of the Bundestag in Germany and the recent uh, incident, WannaCry and NotPetya. Ransomware attacks, right? It's not ransomware. It's uh, covered as ransomware, but actually it was destructive uh, cyber attack. In fact, the um, uh, Bitcoin uh, wallets that were used there didn't receive much money. Even if you paid the money, you couldn't unlock your computer. And now recently, very recently, a month ago, the first WannaCry was attributed to North Korea by several uh, Western countries such as the US, UK and others. And NotPetya was attributed to Russia. And both uh, cyber attacks caused damage not only to the targeted, specific targeted country. They leaked to other countries. Many others. What were the findings of uh, your research? First, the incident that uh, related to regions that uh, there is armed conflict, such as the Gulf or Ukraine and Russia, we can say that none of the nations, parties to those uh, armed conflict, adhere to the laws of armed conflict in cyberspace. As we can see, if the attribution is verified, so if Russia is indeed the one that... Um, uh, executed NotPetya and the Iranian did what they did with the Saudi Arabia and the Saudi Arabia did what they did to Iran. And none of them adhere to the rules of armed conflict. In cyberspace. In cyberspace, mm-hmm. as it was uh, offered by Talin Manuel. Basically, the targets are not military targets. They're civilian uh, casualties. Civilian casualties, civilian targets, the governmental institutions and companies all over the world. And if it was target in Ukraine, also it was financial uh, institution and not pure military uh, targets.
and ambiguity. All the victim nations involved in those incidents embrace ambiguity regarding the activities, defensive or offensive. None of the cases that we examined identified by the victim or by any scholar in the field as an armed attack or use of force. And we found and we think that, uh, in our opinion, it should be extended also to damage to data. Wiping tremendous amount of uh, data, it is more destructive than uh, physical damage. Deborah, if I uh, burnt down uh, the records of the uh, central bank of Fiji, that would be considered an act of war or a, an aggression, act of aggression against that country. You mean a physical country. burning? Physical burning sure. of the, fi- of of the, paper, of the files. paper files. Sure. What about uh, the wiping of the um, virtual files so, of the same bank? Sure. Isn't so, that and, the and same ex- thing? International law has not, at the time of the publications of, of the Tell-In Manuals, had not yet um, wrapped its arms around this whole issue, a very contentious issue, even till today, of destruction of data or warping of data or repli- replication of data. And it's a complex issue. Um, I'm not sure... And, I'm not sure that many of the group experts in Tallinn would not absolutely agree. That is uh, what we call lex feranda, perhaps a, um, and in fact, the law that the should law be. that ought to be, right, or that should be. And in fact, within the manual, um, such views were noted. Here. So, Professor Shani, uh, where are we going from here? What's the future? Are we expecting a Tallinn Manual 3.0 or whatever buzzword they're going to use on that? So, yeah, I mean, uh, there are already initiatives for a digital Geneva Convention, and there has been some talk about maybe convening a, a Tallinn uh, 3.0 that would look uh, into the law as, as it should be. Also, uh, what would be the rules that would protect mostly private interests during non-conflict? I mean, this is an initiative that is really hasn't taken off yet. We need a big cyber war for that to, to, <laughs> to feel how relevant it is to our lives. Right. Uh, yeah, we may have, uh, following the Albert Einstein quip, we may uh, go back to sticks and stones in, in World War IV. <laughs> and, and it's really a question of timing. And I agree with, with Deborah that, I mean, some of the criticism that uh, we are making is really not directed to Tallinn. I mean, in Tallinn, they did what they did. The question is whether uh, states are happy with the state of international law as it is. So in a way, it's blaming the mirror for, for what we're seeing in a way. And I think one of the stronger conclusions of our research is that currently states are not interested in applying in any international law framework to what they're doing. So well, obviously, if they have the power to uh, wage a war or aggression on other countries in the cyberspace, they wouldn't want anybody to t- telling them what to do. So this is part of what's interesting about cyberspace, because you really have an option that you don't normally have in the physical world. I mean, you could have a war which is an overt war out in the open. Uh, but you could also have a, a war which is below the radar screen, which is covered. And this is a rule which is, in practical terms, is a war without laws. Because it's, account- it's not officially war, it's nobody not, is offic- it's, no state is officially uh, uh, taking part in exactly. it. Exactly. No one is accountable. Nobody takes responsibility. And you can get away with everything you can get away with. So it's really uh, a choice to opt at this point in time for the law of the jungle, in which some states that uh, appear to believe that they have the technological uh, capacity to, to prevail in such a conflict, they're not pushing forward for a stronger set of rules that would curb them. So, so for instance, for us, I mean, one of the next phases in this research, and this is something we plan to do also with Mike Schmidt, is to try to uh, work uh, on initiatives for uh, establishing some attribution mechanism that would allow at least those states or those entities who are interested in throwing more lights on what's happening 
and identifying uh, who's behind what's happening, some mechanism with uh, international credibility and also expertise and evidence base that would allow to bring law out in the open. Currently, what you're saying is that there's ambiguity on both both sides. Currently, there is deliberate ambiguity. I mean, it is very interesting that even states that are attacked often do not acknowledge that they are being attacked. Even the victim states are often not admitting that they were attacked. And sometimes it's to allow them freedom of maneuver in responding. Retaliation. Exactly. But it is also, for some governments, it's a sign of weakness to admit mm-hmm. that they were attacked. And it also may expose vulnerabilities in their systems. So states do not acknowledge that they're being attacked. Even if, if they do acknowledge that they're attacked, they're not quick to point the finger and, and attribute it to someone else. Because, again, this would limit... Uh, their options, because if something bad happens to that other country, finger pointing would, would commence immediately. And even if they do attribute the attack, then they do not declare it as an act of war. They do not invoke the uh, most of the provisions of Tallinn, and they don't use force publicly, not, not cybernetic force and not kinetic force. So you could say that at this point in time, we are seeing uh, maybe only the tip of the iceberg All of the action is happening uh, below the radio screen, below the surface. So we are, in a way, in a chronic place of deep ambiguity in which it is not clear uh, what role the law is actually going to play moving forward. And what we have seen in the uh, group of governmental experts uh, at the UN earlier this year, that we didn't get even consensus on the very banal proposition that international law applies in cyberspace. It's a diplomatic forum that in the past uh, had no difficulties in, in proclaiming the application uh, of international law. And this year, uh, there was no consensus even on that basic proposition. So we can't really expect uh, uh, um, like treaties and other uh, more advanced uh, systems of... of so, so, there are two, so there are two or three approaches to the issue. One would be, well, Tallinn is, a, is, a, is, a, is an imperfect product because uh, law is imperfect and therefore we should... Uh, Uh, improve upon Tallinn, and then states will take this uh, product from the shelf. Uh, The second approach may be Tallinn is is an excellent uh, uh, framework, but in order to implement it, we need to strengthen the institutional capacity, for instance, establish an international attribution agency. And third, the the third uh, hypothesis, and this is, of course, the most depressing one, is that states uh, are not interested in, in law whatsoever, and and here they're we are, pushing it back as as, as as far as they can. And here, if this is the case, then uh, we're in a dead end. I mean, we the lawyers are somewhat in a dead end. We we may still have some work to clean up the mess, uh, but in terms of actually the grand scheme of regulating cyber conflict, I think we are at this uh, junction, and we are uh, in a way. Uh, trying to understand which of the three scenarios is the most uh, dominant among uh, more, more state than others. I'd like to pick up on a point that Yuval mentioned. We international lawyers often don't like to pay attention to, and that is the increasingly important role, especially in cyberspace, of private sector actors. Microsoft, about a year ago, offered, together with other private sector companies, to launch a project for the benefit of states in order to build attribution tools. Sort of, we can take this burden off of states, because not quite subtext was, we can do this a lot better than you. It's a technical problem, let us fix it. And again, traditionally, we had sort of, as international lawyers, had said, you know, the private sector actors, they're really um, second-bit players. And they certainly can't form norms at the, on the international plane, or only very rarely. And here we have sort of real-world problems or challenges as international lawyers in, in figuring out whether to make room for, for private sector players and how to make room for them. They also have security breaches 
that are used by governments, by states, by armies to attack companies and other states, which gives them two different uh, roles. One is informing the state uh, and the users that there's a security breach. And the other one is maybe giving those zero-day uh, breaches to governments, to friendly governments, to use against their uh, adversaries. And yet, we always need to remember and remind ourselves that that they're here on Earth to sell product. So <laughs> that kind of underlies... And, and war everything. is a good business. That, that could be. I'm not, that's not my field of expertise. And we, we were talking about ambiguity. Uh, where is Israel on this, with its public policy, if at all? It's a rhetoric question because Israel is not uh, unique in compared to US or UK or other Western uh, countries. I think that the policy of this, I am not uh, represent uh, the Israeli government or the IDF now, I'm not in uh, official capacity, but I think that any, um, anyone can um, observe uh, the situation and come to the same conclusion that Israel can't be different than like-minded countries. So we are focusing on defensive and uh, cybersecurity and of course, On the offensive side, we can't elaborate more than the American and the British <laughs> that way. But not in your capacity as a retired general or major general. <laughs> okay. Does Israel have a public policy regarding cyber war? And if not, <laughs> I'm leading the, the witness, if not, why? Their policy is not necessarily about cyber war, but again, there's a whole range, as we've discussed, a whole range of hostile cyber activity. And this is important to say, we tend to leave aside in these discussions all the great things that come about through cyberspace. And it's important to, to note, especially that Israel has also done a lot in terms of thinking about how it's going to leverage cyberspace for national connectivity and for educational systems. And uh, Israel has, in fact, been very active in a getting policies. Yeah, and, did uh, we draw a line in the sand and say, you cannot pass this on cyberspace or else? I have not seen a line in the sand. It, what is, I think, very important to note is that Israel's uh, first ever published national uh, security strategy in general, without any connection to cyber, which was published in August 2016. The, uh, if you do a, a word search for the word cyber, you find it tens of times. That's really interesting because, in, again, the first ever published national security strategy overall, cyber is already an integral part of uh, a published public document. So anybody reading that understands right away that uh, cyber defense and cyber offense is part of what uh, Israel sees as its toolkit. It's implied. It's much more than implied. It's very much a present uh, situation, which is no different from the situation in other countries. I think Israel belongs to the group of states which is sitting on the fence, which is trying to see where uh, developments are going to, uh, how developments are going to take shape in this field. Shouldn't it be uh, more proactive in, in shaping those? Well, I think it is, it is uh, among the more proactive countries in this world, but given its, uh, you know, its size and its influence, it does only what it can do. I think Israel is also has some experience or, or, or reasons, uh, regional reasons, to be somewhat skeptical about the application of the laws of war in, in its conflicts. I mean, uh, therefore, it is taking a cautious approach uh, on other fronts, but also on this front because of its history and because of the nature of the adversaries and the nature of the conflicts. So if we are concerned uh, in the physical world, in the kinetic world, about what we call asymmetric conflicts, where you don't have on the other side someone who actually could be held to account, I think this no is... No state or no exactly, army. This is much more exacerbated here in cyberspace. Therefore, I think it is 
somewhat sensible for Israel at this point in time to see how things develop before jumping the gun and and promoting a publicly uh, cybersecurity doctrine, which would be out of line with what other democracies confronted with similar predicaments are doing. This was uh, Lex Kibernetica. I would like to thank my guests, Advocate Deborah Hausen-Curiel, Advocate Danifoni, and Professor Yuval Shani. And see you in cyberspace. This was Lex Kibernetica. Lex Kibernetica. More episodes are available at the Hebrew University Cybersecurity Research Center site at csrcl.huji.ac.il.